Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will take a look at Acts chapter 20, verses 5 through 21. In our last teaching, Paul had begun his journey back to Jerusalem, and his original intent was to be back in time for the Passover, but he was delayed. Therefore, he is now trying to return to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, which would be 50 days later, which uh, took place um, after Passover. In order for us to fully appreciate this portion in Paul's journey, uh, I've decided to begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, Antichicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These men, going ahead, waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they had gathered, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Well, as we discussed in our last session, Paul was carrying with him the offering to the churches uh, that, that had been given to him for the persecuted church in Jerusalem. This was another reason why he was so anxious to get back to Jerusalem. This offering was much needed help and he was anxious to get this delivered to them. But part of that gift will be the presence of those who had traveled with him as representatives of the churches, from Galatia, Gaius and Timothy, from Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus, and from Macedonia, Sopater, Aristarchus, and Segundus. We now read that Luke joined the group in Troas as he recorded in verse 6, We sailed from Philippi, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. 
So while in Troas, we read that the church gathered together on what is called the first day of the week to break bread. What does this mean? Well, the first day of the week was what we today call Sunday. Remember, the Jews worshipped on the Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week. This was established by God in the Law of Moses. Actually, it was set apart by God at the time of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says this, beginning with verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So by the time Moses came on the scene, and God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments and the law, the seventh-day Sabbath was incorporated into the Ten Commandments, setting aside one day out of the week to worship God and to give him thanks. So the seventh day remained the day of worship and rest until Jesus' death and resurrection. You will remember that at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. We now stand within the new covenant, and the reference to the breaking of bread was partaking of what we call today communion. Let me read a little from Dr. Ironside's commentary to help us understand. It is a little bit lengthy, but I think this observation will help to make our passage a little bit clearer. He writes, And what was this first day of the week? The day that we call Sunday. And on this day, not on the Jewish Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, Already it had become customary, apparently for the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to gather together for a specific purpose. And that purpose is called here to break bread. This refers, of course, to that simple yet beautiful feast which our Lord Jesus instituted before he left this scene. When he gathered his disciples about him in the upper room, And after they had observed the Jewish feast of the Passover, he took the bread, one of the Passover flat cakes, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. The breaking of bread. And then handed it to his disciples and said, This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also he took the cup after supper, there's a cup upon the table of which ordinary, ordinarily no one partook. It was called the cup of blessing. And if the members of the household said, Why is this cup on the table? The Jewish father answered, It is the cup of blessing for Messiah when he comes. Jesus, celebrating the Passover with his disciples, now took the cup of blessing for he was the Messiah. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is shed for you for the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. Thus he instituted the Lord's Supper. Now we find that after some twenty years had elapsed, it seems to have been a customary thing for the disciples to meet together frequently to observe this feast of love. So, in other words, they met for worship, these, these dear disciples, for the teaching of the Bible, for songs of praise, for fellowship around the table, and for partaking in communion as they remembered the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Following their time around the table, Paul used this opportunity to teach them as much as he could. So Paul talked to them hour after hour, deep into the night. Now, something uh, that I want you to understand. You'll notice that they had gathered in that upper room at night. We know this because lamps were lit. We need to understand that for the people in that day, the first day of the week was a working day. Also, many of those in attendance were most probably slaves who had already worked a very long day. So for them to get together like this and sit down and listen to Paul teach hour after hour shows the measure of commitment they had toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But this would also explain what happened to Eutychus. Most scholars believe that Eutychus was between 8 to 14 years of age and was most probably a slave. The structure of the original language seems to indicate that he had struggled to stay awake, but between the closeness of the crowded room and the heat from the candles, it finally overcame him and he fell into a deep sleep. In fact, he was sleeping so soundly that he literally fell out of the window, which was on the third story of the house. Dr. Luke was present, and he declared upon examination that Eutychus was dead. But Paul had also rushed down to this boy and threw himself onto Eutychus. What Paul did in response to this situation was very similar to what Elijah had done for the young son of the widow at Zarephath. Uh, let me read that account to you now. It's, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 19 through 23. And it reads this way. And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God. Have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. 
Well, also, we can read about how Elisha, the prophet, raised back to life the young son of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 34 through 35, I'm, but I'm actually going to read from verses 32 through 37. And this account reads this way. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child, and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the, on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house, and went up again and, and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Just like these two kinds of events, the raising of Eutychus would verify that the message Paul had been preaching was true and that he was God's servant. We can just imagine the wide range of emotions that had been taking place that night. The people had gathered in eager anticipation and then Eutychus fell and died. And there had to have been a great deal of commotion, confusion, dismay, and a deep sorrow. But then Paul prayed for him, and his life was restored back to him. Such joy and rejoicing must have followed that wonderful miracle. And in verse 12, we read that they brought the young man in alive, and, and they were greatly comforted. So after a, another little snack, Paul continued to teach throughout the night, and in the morning, at daybreak, he departed from Troas. This gathering of believers had listened to Paul teach and also would have been answering numerous questions all night long. This was how great their desire was to learn about Jesus and to grow in their faith. Nothing would stand in their way. And this was the measure of love and commitment Paul had toward the people in light of his calling. Well, let's continue with the reading of Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. And we'll pick up the account in verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he had met us at Asos, we, we took him on board and came to Mytilene, and we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Troglium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. 
From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we read in verse 13, we uh, let me just read that verse again. We, we, then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, where intending to to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So what is taking place here is that Paul sent all of his companions ahead of him on, on the boat, on the ship, and Paul was going to walk to Asos to meet them there in Asos. And it's highly probable that he just needed time to think and to pray and to worship the Lord privately. And so that walk to Asos became that beautiful opportunity for him to do that. But Luke here has given to us a detailed account of their travels as far as Miletus, which uh, Miletus was the port for the city of Ephesus. Because Paul was anxious about the amount of time remaining before Pentecost and his desire to be in Jerusalem at that time, Paul did not want to take the time to be with the church in the city of Ephesus. Instead, he chose to have a message sent to the pastoral leadership in Ephesus requesting that they would come to him. This became his opportunity to share with them in person his final instructions and counsel for the ongoing ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for building up and equipping the body of Christ. Because of the length of the sermon and the important things that Paul addresses in it, I've chosen to break his message up into two parts. For today, we will focus on his preliminary remarks, and in our next session, we will take a look at the balance of the sermon. This sermon is unique on content because well, usually when we study one of Paul's sermons, he was speaking as an evangelist. But in this sermon, he is speaking as a pastor to fellow pastors who were mature in their faith. And therefore, the content and emotion of this sermon is very different from all the others recorded in the book of Acts. Paul began by reminding these faithful pastors of his own faithfulness in preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. He reminded them of the pattern of his life, how he had lived among them, that he had served them in a spirit of humility. And although he had performed miracles, led numerous people to faith in Jesus Christ, baptizing many and planting many churches throughout the Roman Empire, yet he did not boast of his exploits, successes, or popularity. Instead, he was always careful to give the glory to God, who had directed his steps 
and blessed his efforts. Next, he reminded them of his deep love and compassion for them and for the Church of Jesus Christ. This was evidenced by his tears, night and day, as he mentioned on other occasions and in several of his letters to the churches, it, it has always been said, it has been said that it was not a cold-hearted teaching ministry or a distant discipleship ministry that he had. There was a warmth and a cooperation, a sympathy and empathy that Paul had for the people that he ministered to. For example, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2.4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. And in speaking about the lost, Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi, in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. These these things broke Paul's heart. He had such a great capacity for compassion and mercy upon them. Well, Paul also mentioned the trials that he had endured from the Jews. So, so what he is talking about is the importance of endurance in the ministry. In Philippians chapter 3, while he was in prison in Rome, Paul would write the following to encourage the church by his example. So beginning with verse 7, Paul writes this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk 
by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. In the book of Hebrews, the writer follows up this teaching by pointing us to numerous examples of faithful servants of God in the 11th chapter affectionately known as the Hall of Faith. The writer makes this point in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I like what the Life Application Bible Commentary has to say with regards to the topic of endurance on behalf of the faithful. The way of the believer is not easy. Being a Christian does not solve or remove our, all problems. Paul served humbly and with tears, but he never quit, never gave up. The message of salvation was so important that God never missed an opportunity to share it. Although Paul preached his message in different ways to fit different audiences, the message remained the same. Turning away from sin and turning to Christ by faith. The Christian life will have its rough times, tears and sorrows, as well as joys. But we should always be ready to tell others what good things God has done for us. Well, this brings us to Paul's next point, which is that he kept nothing back. It told, he told the truth in love, but with faithfulness and boldness, risking everything so that they would know about Jesus and come to follow him. Paul reminded them that he taught from place to place, from house to house, and also out in the open publicly, he made sure that the entire message was heard by both Jews and Gentiles, anyone who would listen. And what was that message? In Paul's own words, it was repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, turning away from sin and turning to God, recognizing that we are sinners and that sin has separated us from God, but God, who is rich in mercy and abundant in loving kindness, provided a way to be reconciled to him in fellowship with him once again. And what God provided is Jesus. Dr. Ironside addresses the topic of repentance beautifully. He writes this, in a preceding chapter, we saw that God commanded all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. I suppose the reason some of my dear brethren are so afraid of the word repentance is that they imagine people will think of it as a meritorious act. Repentance 
is just the sick man's acknowledgement of his illness. It is simply the sinner recognizing his guilt and confessing his need of deliverance. Do not confound repentance with penitence. Penitence is sorrow for sin, and godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Do not confound repentance with remorse. Remorse generally consists in grieving because you are found out. How many a man in prison is filled with remorse because he got caught? Remorse is not real repentance. Even Judas had had remorse, but he did not repent of his sin. Repentance is not penance. It is not trying in some way or other to make up for the wrong things of the past. Repentance is far more than that. It is judging oneself in the presence of God, turning right about face, turning to God with a sincere, earnest desire to be completely delivered from sin. The two things go together, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever faced your sins in the presence of God? And that is my question to you today, my friend. Have you ever faced your sins in the presence of God? Have you repented of your sin and asked God for forgiveness? You can do that today, right now, this very moment. You know, our tendency as human beings is to say, well, I'm going to get my life all straightened out and then I will come to God. But it doesn't work that way. For one thing, you can't get your life straightened out in your own strength because, well, you are already a sinner. It is God who forgives and cleanses us from sin. And then he gives to us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and it is through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he transforms our lives. I love what the Bible says about the love of God in in Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 6. It says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. To be justified is to be declared by God so clean that is just as if we had never sinned. That is the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Paul continues, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Ah, 
reconciliation. Is that what you want? You know, recently I had a fallout with a dear friend and because of circumstance and uh, misunderstanding, relationship was uh, broken. And I prayed and I prayed for reconciliation. And by God's grace, that day came and there was nothing like it. That, that peace that fills the heart when you're reconciled back to the one that you love. Well, God loves you, my friend. God loves you and God loves me. And the sin that separates us from him breaks his heart. He longs for reconciliation. Do you long for reconciliation? Do you long for that relationship with God, the one who loves you so much that he gave his own son to die for your sins, that in him you might receive the gift of everlasting life? Hmm. Forgiveness of sins. Having that heavy burden lifted off of you. Do you hunger for that? Then turn to Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Jesus. And ask him to forgive you and become your Savior and your Lord. I promise you, if you ask... He will forgive you and make you his own dear child. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, for this wonderful gift of salvation that was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross when he died in our place for our sins. Thank you, O oh God, that Jesus rose from the dead. And by his death, Lord, we know that the debt, the sin debt has been paid in full. And that now all who put their trust in Jesus might receive that blessed gift of forgiveness and everlasting life. Sonship, Lord, that we might become sons and daughters of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there are those who are listening who perhaps do not know you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will reveal yourself to that person and that, that they will cry out to you and ask you to forgive them, Lord. And when they cry out, I pray, O oh God, that you will hear and answer their prayer from heaven and make them your own dear child. But there are also, Lord, those perhaps who have been struggling, or perhaps who have wandered, or perhaps just need that fresh touch from you. And I pray, O oh God, that you will minister to them, and you will speak to them, and that you will draw them once again back to the cross, back to your arms of love, back to you, O oh God, and restore them into that sweet fellowship, that wonderful reconciliation with you, fellowship with you, relationship with you. And I pray that you will bless them, O oh God, and keep them close to your heart. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you're finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. Again, that's just all one word, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So, until next time, my dear friend, rejoice in the God of your salvation. Be faithful in service to him and be fervent in prayer. God bless you.